Thank you, worship band, and thank you, choir. You could say amen. We could get about our day. What an incredible message and beautiful voices to deliver it. It's going to be a great morning. So I wanted to uh, update you on Pastor John this morning. I put it in my notes, but he is here to update you himself, um, which caused my anxiety to spike a little bit this morning, but that's okay. <laughs> I know it shouldn't. I, all rational thought goes aside when you struggle with anxiety, and there are those of you who are gripped with it, and I know you understand um, that. So all rational thought goes aside. He's an incredible man of God and just incredibly gifted at speaking, and so it makes me nervous for him to be here this morning, but uh, it shouldn't because he's never said anything or done anything that makes me nervous. So I, I want to say that, but he's here this morning. Um, be easy on him. Don't tap him on the shoulder or get, you can get close, but not too close because we want him back next week in James. And so spend some time with him this morning, encouraging him. He appreciated your emails that you sent. I'm sure my office suffered for it. He doesn't know that I know, but he played a few tricks on me and I don't need to be here. I think I can roam around a little bit. I'm used to that. So he played a few tricks on me because I encouraged emails. So I appreciate the love. I saw it as love. So thank you. I have been on vacation this week. Uh, so I'm a little refreshed. That's good. <clears throat> Although when I looked in the mirror this morning, I didn't feel refreshed. Sometimes you need a vacation from your vacation. That's how I felt this morning. Uh, so extra eye cream got me here this morning. You guys understand. <laughs> I started uh, my vacation a week ago Friday by finishing off my New Testament class. Uh, I finished well. Thank you for those who've been praying for me. Um, schooling is not my gift or ability, but I have been doing well and I have learned so much. I was in the Old Testament for eight weeks, and then I was in the New Testament for eight weeks, which means for 16 weeks I read every word of the Bible cover to cover. It was a challenging 16 weeks. Uh, some Fridays I spent reading from like 9 o'clock in the morning until 10 or 11 o'clock at night because I had textbooks to read as well. I learned so much. And out of that, you know, two weeks ago, if you were here, that I read Malachi and it really changed me. So I'm back in Malachi this morning. I hope you get as much out of it as I did when I studied it. So that's how I started my vacation. I finished that off. I traveled with friends to SoCal. We went to Disneyland and Universal Studios and did a few fun things. Um, I did some work around the house midweek. We were home. I just spent a couple days in SoCal. I did some work around the house. How many of you have been doing yard work? Yes. The beautiful weather means that the weeds and the grass is growing way faster than it should. And so we've been in the yard a lot over the last week since the rains stopped. And then at the end of the week, I took, some, some of you are going to think I'm a glutton for punishment. I took two exchange students, Nico, who's living with us, and Gustavo, who's with McEwen's. And I took them to Disneyland, and we were in Disneyland all day on Friday, and it's exhausting following teenagers around Disneyland. We got home yesterday afternoon. I took one look at the yard and said, all of the work I've done isn't enough. So we went back to the yard. Nico thought we were trying to kill him. He's from Spain. They live in a building in Spain, so they don't have lawns to take care of. He doesn't even know what a lawnmower is. Um, so maybe we protected him too much, too much over the months that he's been here, but we mowed lawns, pulled weeds, and worked really hard in the yard yesterday. I've been doing yard work my whole life, almost um, my whole life. Um, I've been doing yard work since I was six years old. I think I first pushed a lawnmower when I was six years old, and not the lawnmowers we have today, but the little thing that kind of pulls you along. As a six-year-old, that could have been dangerous. It probably would have drugged me around the yard, but uh, it didn't even have a bag, our lawnmower, so I had to rake as well, and I don't know if any 
uh, children today even know what a rake is or how to use it? Because those bags are amazing. I like it myself. But I've been doing yard work, push the lawnmower when I was six. There are words for that today for sure. Child labor comes to mind. Maybe abuse. I don't know how you feel about that. Um, there was a word for it in the 70s and 80s when I was a kid. It was called, I want dinner tonight. <laughs> so you worked. So you worked around the house. Um, if you saw a six or seven-year-old today working in the yard or pushing a lawnmower, you would probably think, oh, that's bad parenting. In the 70s and 80s, if you saw a kid, a six-year-old, seven-year-old pushing a lawnmower around the yard, you thought, that boy's getting dinner tonight. So it's a different time. I'm not sure where I fall out on that. Maybe somewhere in the middle. Maybe a lawnmower is a little advanced for a six or seven-year-old, but, you know, some weeds and some things like that aren't too advanced. Get your kids out of the house, away from their video games. Teach them how to do yard work. Even if you live in a building, do something. Someone will thank you someday. So I would thank uh, Nico's parents if they were here. If they had trained him a little better, we could have a lawnmower without me having to do it. We would call it a lawn service. Nico, mow the lawn. I'm going to take care of the remote this morning. I'm just kidding. I wouldn't do that. Maybe. I did a lot of work when I was young, actually. I remember, I have a vivid memory of when I was seven years old, standing on a footstool in front of the sink doing dishes. Um, vivid, vivid memory of that, looking out the window. The reason why the memory is so vivid is because a neighbor uh, came over. He was a teenager, and he came over, and he snuck under the window. We didn't have blinds or window coverings, and he jumped up while I was washing dishes and scared me. I fell off the stool. I broke a plate. It was a bad day, but a vivid memory of doing dishes when I was seven. I remember learning to do my own laundry when I was very young. I don't remember exactly when, probably around the same time. The reason why there was so much necessity in my life to do those things, one, I'm a bit OCD and I'm a clean freak. So that started very young, maybe before I can even remember. Two, my parents divorced when I was very young. I was six years old when my parents divorced. And it was really difficult on me as a six-year-old. I remember thinking my dad has walked out on us. My dad has left us. Almost my mom walked out without me, my two sisters and without me, but I caught up to her. Um, I wasn't sure what was going on. You can imagine at six, you get a little confused. You're not sure. But I, I grew up from six until 16, uh, not knowing if my dad loved me. And if I said that today to him, it would break his heart. It would really melt him. But I grew up not knowing if my dad loved me from six to 16. I didn't have a relationship with him. I felt abandoned. Every teacher I had every year suffered through some of the issues that I dealt with from the divorce of my parents. Because every year they kind of had to break down barriers with me. Every year they had to build trust. I had to know that they weren't going to walk out on me as well. My grandparents were very stable. They had a wonderful marriage their entire lives. Even when my grandfather died, my grandmother uh, loved him very much and spoke of him often and the wonderful marriage they had. So I had that example. I had other examples in my life as well. But... None of it overshadowed the pain, the guilt, and the hurt that I felt as a six-year-old that just stayed with me. That same exact feeling, six-year-old boy feeling, stayed with me, and it has never left. At 48 years old, there are still things that happen in my life that take me back to that moment. Divorce affected me as a child. It still affects me as an adult. 
A couple years ago, things changed in our life. At 16, let me back up, tell you a little bit of my testimony. At 16, my dad and I developed a relationship. Um, Joyce, my stepmother, came into his life, and things changed dramatically. And at 16, we developed a pretty strong relationship, and the bond continued until a couple years ago when she was put in a home for Alzheimer's and dementia. I didn't understand it, but all of those feelings of abandonment came back in when my dad stopped including me in his life for some reason. It's tough for me to tell you that this morning, and it's difficult for my dad and I to go through that. Um, as, as those feelings came back, I struggled with the divorce. Again, just over and over and over again. Divorce affected my, me my entire life, and two years ago was no different. I felt abandoned again. I felt hurt. I felt set aside. I felt not worthy of a father's love. It was difficult, and I don't say that to get sympathy this morning. I say that because there might be people in here who struggle with the same thing. Maybe your parents divorced or someone you cared about divorced, and it affected you in a very deep and meaningful way, life-changing way. You should work through that. When I was doing the Old Testament class, I got to Malachi, and I was reading Malachi, and it changed my heart on many issues. And it healed me in a lot of ways. And divorce is one of the issues that changed my life on. Divorce is one of the things that Malachi addresses. And through Malachi and jumping into the New Testament, God changed my heart. God healed me in a lot of ways. God set me free. And in preparing for this morning last night, my dad called. It's an amazing thing. A couple years of not speaking very much, I would call him and check in on him. I would call him and see how he was doing he struggled with cancer. He struggled with bladder and kidney issues. And I visited him in the hospital, and I reached out to him. Uh, he was not reaching back, really. Last night, he called. And long story short, we're going to get together, hopefully, this week and work through some things that we've been going through over the last couple years. So praise God for that. I see, I see healing in the near future for that relationship. And once again, uh, hopefully... I will be set free from those six-year-old feelings I had about divorce. <clears throat> before I get into reading Malachi this morning, before I get into the study of Malachi in the New Testament, Malachi and, I have to enunciate that, the New Testament, uh, I want to tell you that if you've gone through a divorce, if anything in your life has happened that caused you to separate from your spouse and and that's where you're at, that's your life's journey, I don't want to bring up that hurt this morning. So hear my heart, hear my words, and listen carefully. It would be very easy to shut off if you've been affected by divorce, not wanting to hear what the Bible has to say about it or what God has to say about it. Also hear this, that there are reasons to separate from a spouse or to divorce. And even though you may not hear those clearly in my message this morning, we know as a church that there are, and we stand with you, and we hurt for you, I would encourage you to talk to people about it. So before we get in, I wanted to say that this morning, and this morning I will be reading in Malachi. Once again, I left my glasses. I did that last week too, and I'm not doing it for attention, I promise. They're not. Did I bring them up? Oh, I need a Bible with bigger words, I think. They're not down there. I am so sorry. They're right here. Sorry, I won't do that in the second service. Please, I hope the recording can be adjusted. 
That's embarrassing. <clears throat> Malachi 2, 10 through 16. Where do I go from here? Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And the second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears and weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit, and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. The Lord instituted marriage as a sacred covenant relationship. But the men in this community in Malachi dishonored the Lord in their marriages in two specific ways. The first issue was they intermarried with foreign women who worshiped other gods. The Lord prohibited such marriages because they would lead the people away into idolatry. And we could read about this in Deuteronomy 7, 3, and 4. If you're taking notes, write that down. It says this, though. I'll read it for you. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. These intermarriages led people, sons and daughters, into idolatry. Joshua 23, 12 through 13 says this, For if you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you and make marriages with them, so that you associate with them and they with you, know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you, but they shall be a snare and a trap for you, a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from off this good ground that the Lord your God has given you. Some pretty strong words about intermarrying and the results of that. Now the problem with these marriages, just so you know, it wasn't a racial issue. That's not the intermarrying that they're talking about, that Malachi has been talking about. It's spoken about in Deuteronomy or Joshua. That is not the type. It's spiritual. It's a spiritual thing, not an interracial thing. Economic issues were probably involved here as well because marriage fostered a relationship with foreigners who owned significant amounts of land. So men would leave their wives in order to marry women who had an inheritance of land. Nevertheless, God knew it was especially important at this time and for the struggling remnant of Jews to maintain their spiritual identity. In other words, to not wash away Israel by these intermarriages, by losing sons and daughters to idolatry, by serving foreign gods. And the Lord threatened to cut off those who married these pagan women. 
Ezra and Nehemiah, who were contemporaries of Malachi, also confronted the problem of intermarriage with pagans. If you're taking notes, you could read about that in Ezra 9 and 10 or Nehemiah 13, 23 through 29, if you want to go a little deeper. For the sake of time, I'm not going to read those to you this morning. The second issue was that divorce had become a common occurrence in the community. Sound familiar? Perhaps with the men divorcing their wives so they could marry these foreign women whose families owned land so that they could, in, they could inherit the land or they could receive the land so they could get economic status. The Lord's intent from the beginning was for marriage to be a lifelong commitment between one man and one woman. I love the classic story of Adam and Eve, and I'm going to read it for you this morning about when they were brought together. Genesis 2, 21 through 25 says, The Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. I didn't have to include that last part, but it is fun to think about. Adam and Eve in the garden, communing with God. No shame, just the two of them doing what God intended for man to do. We're not so far from that. That is still the perfect vision God has for mankind, to commune with him, to be in his presence, to not be ashamed. But we do stuff that causes shame on ourselves, on others. So we live in a constant state, state of separation. Thus, the need for Jesus in our lives. We went through that living sacrifice that we are called to be a few weeks ago. We went through the perfect sacrifice of Jesus and what that means for us. We are meant to commune with God. And the Lord's intent from the beginning was for marriage to be a lifelong commitment between one man and one woman. Mosaic law allowed for divorce. If you read about that, it was very regulated and restricted. Jesus confirmed in his teaching that marriage was for a lifetime. So Mosaic law tells us that marriage is for a lifetime. Divorce can happen, but it's very regulated and restricted. There are specific reasons to divorce. It's laid out in the Old Testament. We fast forward to the New Testament. Jesus tells us that there is reason that divorce can happen, but marriage was meant to be for a lifetime. The New Testament appears to allow for divorce in cases of adultery or when an unbeliever abandons a believing spouse. But we know this, Old Testament and New Testament, little sidebar on that, it would be nice to call it the First Testament and the Second Testament. When I say Old Testament to young adults, it kind of feels like it's old, it's outdated, like maybe your parents or your grandparents. So we could call it the First Testament and the, the Second Testament. Um, I know that's the title on your Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, but there's nothing old about the Old Testament. It applies to our life today just like it did then. And when you compare it to, when you study it with 
when you complement it with the New Testament, you're going to get valid, valuable truths in your life, just like I did in Malachi. And it's going to change who you are as a believer. It's going to change who you are as a person. So don't dismiss the Old Testament because there's the word old in front of it. It would be like saying that John is the old pastor and Jared is the young pastor. I only say that because Jared was up last week. That is not true. John is very youthful. John has a very youthful spirit. He's probably the most fit person on staff. And I'm not saying that just because he's sitting here. I'm actually purposely not looking at him right now. John is very youthful. John's a very young guy. And Jared is kind of an old soul. <clears throat> it balances out. And then you have those of us in the middle. So it's almost like the entire pastoral staff is the same age. There's not an old, older pastor staff or a young pastor staff. It's almost like we're the same age, with the exception of probably Pastor Tim Allen and TJ. The Old Testament complements the New Testament. There is a real need to read both. And we see this in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Lord hates divorce. In fact, Malachi equates it to practicing violence. Because of the covenantal nature of marriage, faithlessness toward one spouse is also considered faithlessness toward God. Tough words to hear in the culture we live in, where divorce is rampant, not just outside the walls of the church, but inside as well. I want to tell you this this morning. Relationships aren't temporary. And as witnessed by my life, neither is divorce. Both of those things have a major impact on people's lives. Divorce happens in a moment, but the mindset, I believe, starts through habits formed even in our youth. In culture today, casual dating is very, very okay. In fact, in some cases, it's celebrated. Sure, date this person and figure out what qualities they have that you might want in a future spouse. Date the next person and figure out what qualities they have. It's almost like a buffet where you get to build this plate of qualities that you get to take into your adult life and then choose the perfect human being to marry. Let me set this straight for all the youth out here that are not married. Perfect human being doesn't exist. Not even me. Ask my wife. We date, we break up, we date, we break up, and culture tells us that that's okay. That that's okay. Yes, there's boundaries in dating for the people inside the church, but I think the, the casual dating, that date and break up, date and break up, date and break up, creates habits that are very easy to carry into your adult life or even into your marriage. And I'm not saying don't date. I'm not going full Joshua Harris on you this morning, but I am telling you to be cautious about those patterns that you create in your youth that could very well lead to you feeling like a text message is a great way to divorce a future spouse. We cycle through friends. What kind of habits do we create in our friends? This friend is meeting a need right now, and so that's great. I'm going to be friends with them. But then all of a sudden, they're not meeting that need anymore, and I'm just going to dismiss them. They still want to be friends, but I don't, so that's okay. What about the next friend and the next friend? What about the next person that you stomp on their feelings because you feel like they're not meeting a need or you don't need them in your life right now? They say that people come into our life for a reason, a season, or a lifetime. 
I'm telling you that for the believer, people come into your life for eternity. If you do life with people, if you do it correctly, then you're standing shoulder to shoulder with people who are going to inherit the kingdom and that friendship will last forever. And that's what we should do. But we cycle through friends, like they're part of the trash that we hauled out yesterday. We leave churches. We divorce our churches. We don't want to admit that, and I spoke about that a little bit two weeks ago, but we divorce our churches. In essence, we divorce our boyfriends and girlfriends when we're young. We divorce ourselves from commitment in our friendships, and we definitely divorce ourselves from church. And all of this, the sad part is that all of this behavior is deemed acceptable in our culture. That person isn't meeting your needs. Step away from them, leave them, break up with them, send them a text message. That friend isn't exactly who you thought they should be in that moment. They've hurt your feelings. Get rid of them, hurt them back. That church, as I said two weeks ago, doesn't have reclining chairs or a big gold holder. Get out, head to the church that does. If you weren't here two weeks ago, listen to the message. I don't want to go into it again, but yeah, let's leave our church. These are all behaviors these are all behaviors that can be equated with divorce or compared to divorce because these behaviors damage our view of commitment. Marriage is a commitment. It's a covenant that you enter into. And when you do things in your life, when you create habits in your life that damage your view of commitment, it is hard to see marriage as a commitment when the hard times come when difficulties are there, when you feel justified in the action of stepping away from that spouse. And we see it in Malachi, we see it all throughout the Old Testament, and we see it in the New Testament as well. That behavior is not okay. We're to be committed. Romans 12.10. I issued a challenge a couple weeks ago that I asked you to read Romans 12 every day for a week. I don't know how many of you did that. If you didn't, here's another challenge. Read Romans 12 every day this week. And then at the end of the week, see how God has changed you. Romans 12 is an incredible chapter where you can be challenged as a believer. And Romans 12.10 says this, Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Outdo one another in showing honor. In our marriages, outdo one another in showing honor. In our friendships, outdo one another in showing honor. In our church relationships, in our relationship to the church, outdo one another in showing honor. You can't honor somebody if you step away from them. You can't honor somebody if you leave them. You can't honor God and honor the church if you're so freely walking away. Don't date on again, off again, on again, off again, on again, off again, people, friends, or the church. It will lead you to a bad place and you will struggle. I guarantee you will struggle with your commitment. Not just to those things, but to your spouse as well. Love one another. That means you invite people in. Love one another means that you include people in your life. You don't dismiss them. When there are problems, you deal with them. When there are issues, you deal with them. Bob Goff says, everybody got quiet because I said Bob Goff. I wish he was here this morning to say it himself. Bob Goff says that 
People have issues. People are not issues. People are people. And that is so true inside the church and outside the church. Sometimes we equate people's issues with the person themselves, and that causes us to have a lack of commitment to that person. Whether it's our spouse, people in the church, or our friends. People have issues. People are not issues. Pastor Jared read it a few weeks ago, and I'm just going to read it for you this morning and have a couple reminders from it. Philippians 2, 1 through 5 says this. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Scripture is clear, crystal clear, in the Old Testament, the First Testament, and the New Testament. We are to be committed committed in our relationships to one another, committed in our friendships, committed in our church, committed in our marriage. Who cares what culture says? We are also called to be countercultural, to stand out against others. You know what changed me as a person? Coming into this church changed me as a person, literally. 1992, some of you have been here since before I even came. Paul Olson, who is on the platform leading us in Worship this morning, I think he's been here since the ark landed. (laughs) This church changed me. I accepted Jesus Christ for the first time in 1992. In 1994, I was baptized just outside the student center. In 1998, I was put on staff as an administrative assistant to the music pastor at the time. And in 2011, I came onto the pastoral staff. This church changed me, it molded me, it shaped me. You know what else it did for me? It modeled commitment through marriages like Paul Olson and Lynn Olson, the Turners and others. It modeled what it meant to be a part of a family as I watched families worship together and live life together. It's so different than what I was raised in outside the church and in a divorce setting. This church changed me. We are called to be committed because you can be a part of that change in somebody's life. You may not even see it. It might be like 20 some odd years from now, someone stands up here and tells you that you were a part of a countercultural movement that changed their lives. That's what I'm telling people this morning who have been here since 1992. You changed my life. You made me a better person. You showed me the love of God and I accepted it. And God loved me so deeply that he changed who I was from the inside out. And anybody who was here from 1992 on is a part of that and gets to take a little bit of credit and they're going to stand before God one day and I hope Jesus tells them, you changed Corey's life. I'm thanking you this morning. I don't know how many opportunities I've taken to thank you in the past or how many opportunities I will have in the future, but I am thanking you this morning for being a part of this church and for changing my life, for being committed to me. People have walked away from this church for reasons that I don't think they should walk away for. 
and it hurt. It brought up those feelings of divorce and separation, that feeling of abandonment or anxiety that comes from that. But many of you have stuck with it. Many of you have been here, and you're a blessing. Be committed. We're also losing our devotion to uniting with like-minded individuals. 2 Corinthians 6 Starting middle of verse 2 and skipping around a little bit in there. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. This is Paul speaking to the church in Corinth about his people traveling with him, the church. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance and afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, Sounds like a blast, doesn't it? Sounds like something you want to sign up for and be a part of. Sounds like something you would endure. Sounds like a relationship you would stick with. No, but some did. By purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God, it's getting better, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise. We are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. Skip ahead a little bit to 14 and it says this. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Bilal? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them, among them and walk among them, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst. And be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you. And you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. What an incredible thing when we choose to be united. When we choose to not separate ourselves. When we choose to not divorce ourselves from our friends. When we choose to not divorce ourselves from our churches, when we choose to not divorce ourselves from our spouses, when we choose to join God in the work He's doing through all types of trials. What an incredible blessing that God will be our Father, faithful to the end. We are to avoid being unequally yoked. It literally helps us to be committed to one another more long term. We don't need to be doing what the world's doing. We don't need to accept divorce in our churches. We don't need to accept this separation that takes place and the damage that takes place when we aren't permanent in our relationships, when we think our relationships are temporary. We join with like-minded individuals. Commitment puts aside self-ambition as we read in Philippians. You know what self-ambition is? It's I want. Self-ambition says I want. I want this and therefore I'm going to get it. I want new friends. I want a different worship experience. I want the word to be easier to understand. 
I want a show when I show up on Sunday mornings. I want somebody who excites me and empowers me and makes me feel good about myself. That's selfish ambition. Commitment puts aside selfish ambition. It puts aside conceit. Conceit is simply this, I'm entitled. It's a really big problem in our culture. I'm entitled to better worship. I'm entitled to better preaching. Stick with us, it's coming next week. (laughs) Back in James, we're in James, we're starting in James. I'm entitled to better friends. I'm entitled to a different relationship. I'm entitled to have a younger spouse. I'm entitled to not love that person anymore. Commitment puts aside self-ambition, the I want. It puts aside conceit, the I'm entitled. And it chooses humility. Being humble is a lost art in our culture. We need to be humble. We need to model that inside the church and outside the church in community. Church, divorce isn't temporary. It has lasting effects that literally infects everyone it comes in contact with. In some way, nearly everybody has been touched by divorce. And it's painful. And everybody in here has a story. Maybe you're thinking, no, I'm so married. My parents are married. My children are married or will be someday. It hasn't infected me at all. It hasn't affected me at all. Ask yourself this. What about your coworkers? What about the people that you go to school with? Have they been affected by divorce? What about the people sitting next to you? What about the children in our children's ministry? Maybe you serve in there. Have they been affected by divorce? Because in so much as one person that you come in contact with, one person that you share a like mind with, one person that you live out Jesus for is affected by divorce, you are affected by divorce. We counsel them. We do life with them. What about our junior high students? What about our high school students? What about our young adults in in our church? Have they been affected by divorce? As a church, if they've been affected, then you have too. Even if it's not right on your doorstep or inside your home, you've been affected by it. Divorce affects nearly everybody. These are conversations we need to have in the church because there's a lot of hurt that happens from divorce. For more than 40 years, there's been hurt in my life from my parents' divorce. I love my wife dearly. I'm deeply committed to her. There's been a lot of people that have modeled relationship for us, and we know how that works because of people inside this church. We know what it means to be committed. We know what it means to live through the difficult times to the better times. But for 40 years, not because of my wife, I've been affected by divorce because of a decision my parents made. Many people have been affected by it. We need to have these conversations in the church. Healing needs to take place. And again, I said it at the beginning, and I want to close with this today. If you've divorced, if you felt that hurt, if you have felt that hurt of separation, we want to talk to you. We want to help with the healing. We want to invite God into the process. Maybe you've dealt with it. And maybe you're one of the people that can counsel and help somebody else who's dealing with that. Please step forward and do that. Divorce is a very difficult thing in our culture. And it's something that more and more and more is not being addressed. It's becoming more and more common inside the church and outside the church. Malachi had definite words from God about divorce. The New Testament 
has definite words about divorce, and we need to have this conversation in the church. In just a few moments, we're going to pray. I'm going to pray. I'm going to invite the deacons and elders, the pastoral staff, and their wives up here to be available for anybody who wants to start that process of healing or tell your story about how you've been affected by divorce. If you're here this morning and you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, start that process as well. That is very much a part of the healing process. It changed my life. This church changed my life. Let me pray for us. And then if you need prayer, please, please come forward and let's start the process. Father God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your perfect word. As we've opened it this morning, God, you have spoken to us through your Holy Spirit. I pray that it is your Holy Spirit that is active in this room, that touches the hearts of people, that opens their ears to hear what it is that you want to teach them, God. It's my voice, but it's your words, God, reaching into the hearts of the people of this congregation. I pray, I pray that people would be changed, not because of anything that I've said this morning, but because of the work that your Spirit is doing in the lives of the people of this church. And that someday, 20 years from now, someone else will stand up here and tell their story about how impacted they have been from the congregation here at Grace Community Church, the family here at Grace Community Church. God, I pray your blessings upon this day as we leave this place. Help us to be great representations of you, God. Help us to bring your word, your gospel, your good news into this community of Visalia. And throughout this week, God, help us to be committed to the plans and purpose that you have for our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.